This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to the Longlist episode of the Bailey Gifford Prize podcast. I'm Razia Iqbal and in this episode we'll be speaking with judges Stig Abel and Francis Wilson to talk about the 12 books that have made it onto the 2019 Longlist. Thanks again to our generous podcast supporters, the Blavatnik Family Foundation, for their continued support. The 12 titles span history, biography, current affairs and natural science, with several addressing grand themes including race, courtroom drama, ideology and economics. For those listeners who haven't heard what books have made it onto the list, here's a quick recap. In alphabetical order by author name, I Will Never See the World Again by Ahmed Altan, translated by Yasmin Konga. Furious Hours by Casey Kep, On Chapel Sands by Laura Cumming, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company by William Dalrymple, Homesick, Why I Live in a Shed by Katrina Davis, The Lives of Lucian Freud, Youth, William Fever, The Windrush Betrayal, Exposing the Hostile Environment, Amelia Gentleman, Maoism, A Global History by Julia Lovell, The Ministry of Truth, A Biography of George Orwell's 1984 by Dorian Linsky, Guesthouse for Young Widows, Azadeh Moavani. The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Rubenhold. And The Outlaw Ocean by Ian Urbina. So, Stig and Francis, welcome. Stig, let's just get a general overview as the chair of the judges of how enjoyable or not this process was. It's been really good and I, I thought it was going to be and it has. I've never been in a book group. I find book groups a bit oppressive as an idea because the idea of sort of performatively talking about reading. And yet one of the great pleasures in life is when you've read a book and someone you know has read a book and you talk about it. And I think one of the joys of this was I got lots of when we before we had the meeting, a couple of people sent their remarks on each book that they'd read, which was like getting my own personal book reviews, which was brilliant. And then when we got in the room, it was just a chance to talk about things that found you found interesting, things you could get passionate about. A lot of these books are, I mean, it's, it's a genuine pleasure reading like this. Books that, you know, you'd probably read two or three non-fiction books in any given, you know, couple of months. But to read a whole bunch of them, you constantly feel like you're learning interesting things and then you get to talk about it with people like Francis. And that bit was a real pleasure, wasn't it? It wasn't it wasn't awkward in any way. No, I agree. I completely agree. It was a pleasure. It's an interesting kind of impact to reading a ton of books at the same time as each other, isn't it? Because you really can then decide that kind of more than, less than, equal to. You get a real sense of the kind of the strength of books, how books talk to each other. And you also get a sense, sometimes regrettably, of publishing trends. Oh, um, gosh, you do. That's interesting. Yes. Explain a little more. Well, I mean, there's an awful lot of whimsical nature writing in the world. Lots of people who are very literary sort of musing about the land. And that can be brilliant when done well. But when done just averagely, yeah. it can great. I think the, the biggest publishing trend I, I can is seems to me is they want I in every book. Yes. They want you yes. to say not only here's a story of something, here's me in the book doing something about it. And some people can really pull that off and it does give it energy and sass and kind of um, integrity but sometimes it can just be oh god it's just a formula where I've done one general yes. point one bit about me one bit about me as a child one general yes, point yes it's writing by numbers isn't it and you were very hot on that I remember you saying a couple of books that aren't on the list Francis was going 
you just it's just too obvious it's just we yes. know we know the how the it's been edited you know how they've been prodded yes. into this position okay yes. so the obvious has definitely been avoided in this long list uh, let, let's go through the the list and and talk in in a little more detail so people have a sense of what these books are about let's start with uh, Ahmed Altan I will never see the world again uh, Fran- Francis this is an extraordinary book because the man is in prison he's one of Turkey's most important writers and is part of President Erdogan's response to the coup of 2016. He was one of those people who was thrown into jail and, and there he still languishes. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's right. And this book itself was smuggled out of prison. In um, Each page was kind of hidden inside the pages of notes for his, um, for his lawyer. It's not what you'd expect. You'd think, given that he's writing in prison, that this would be a very angry book. But it's dreamy. He writes about the experience of incarceration in, um, I wouldn't say a lyrical way, but um, it's a way, he's trying to find a way of surviving and he's trying to find a way of surviving through writing and through thinking about the power of literature, the power of the literature that he's already read, which is kind of nurturing him and sustaining him, but also um, what writing can do for him to keep him going. He will describe, for example, the uh, he'll measure the size of the cell he's in. He'll take He'll pace around it, measure the size of the cell, talk about the window, and then start thinking about uh, space and time in the most astonishing way. And some of the things he says just take your breath away. Like when he's talking about just the impact of never seeing your face again. It may as well be called, I will never see my face again, because there's no mirrors. So he said, if you can never see your face, you'd stop having a face. And he said, you know, the first morning when he goes out of his cell and he has he washes his hands over a um, over a large dripping cold tap, he looks up automatically to see his face and there's nothing there, and that's when it dawns on you what um, what what he's going through. Um, no, it's an it's an extraordinary, wonderful book, and it's not really even a book; it's a collection of essays. Put it, together to make it a book. sounds extraordinarily powerful, but underlining what Francis is saying, Stig, of course, is that it's exceptionally well written, and the and the writing of these is really important. It's not just about extraordinary stories. It's such a good point that because we've talked about this quite a lot. The ideal book is going to be both important and also brilliant in terms of the writing, and everyone actually, each judge will have their own calibration of that. So some people might veer towards political relevance or importance and some might veer towards more the quality of each local sentence but clearly the winner has got to have both um, and w- what you think is more important I think is a very personal choice I'm just personally thrilled that this is a book prize we're going to be giving exposure to this guy this book that's itself I think an important yeah. act for us to say this is a book and by the way it's brilliant we're not doing this just because we want to be political but what's the thing I mean he was accused of subliminally influencing things I mean it's a disgrace it's a disgrace yeah. it's a barbarity that this guy is in prison and, and you know we're just a little book prize and but if a tiny little fragment of light falls on it because of this long listing that's a good thing in I itself. Com- I completely agree. Let's go on to talk about Casey Kep's Furious Hours, which is an incredibly complicated story. Stig, why don't you tell us a little <laughs> bit about that? I got stuck on a train for six hours uh, with this book, so I feel I know it pretty well. Uh, it's a kind of complicated story, but it's the sort of story when I start explaining it, you'll be going, I can't wait to hear about that. So there's an African-American priest in the Deep South uh, who's involved in voodoo. He starts killing members of family members of his family to get the insurance payouts 
uh, and he keeps getting arrested and he keeps getting in unsuccessfully prosecuted so someone shoots him in a courtroom kills him and his lawyer then transfers allegiance to the man who shot him uh, and starts running a plea that he was insane meanwhile harper lee finishes to kill a mockingbird goes off with Truman Capote to, to, to help him write In Cold Blood and wants something to write about. So she returns to this part, which is quite near where she grew up, to try and write a book about this priest, this murder and this community. Is it as much of uh, this story about the Reverend and his shenanigans and the lawyer, but also about Harper Lee? Well, that, and Harper Lee's in the yeah. cover because she's the most famous. But I mean, you don't even meet Harper Lee until halfway through the book, do you? And so the Harper Lee story is folded in in this sort of. You sort of forget about Harper Lee. And then you remember, of course, this is the book that Harper Lee couldn't write. And so Casey Keff has become Harperley. And then the book changes gear altogether and becomes about not being able to write a book. Why couldn't Harperley write this book? So it's a it's a really, really interesting story. <laughs> but the story is like it's like a John Grisham novel. It's <laughs> yes, like a John it Grisham novel, but a non-fiction account yeah. of it. And Harper Lee's in it. I mean I know. I, I yeah, why would you not want to pick that up? No, and also why have I not heard of that before? I know. The the the, the, the priest you know, who kills his family. It's such an amazing what story. Meanwhile, the lawyer, uh, he's he's a very liberal, massively inspired by the Kennedys. This is at the civil rights period. He tries to come out. He's only a lawyer because he tried to be a politician, a democratic politician, and he gets race-hated out of it because he's yeah. too supportive of black people. So there's a whole story of the civil yeah. rights movement and its impact on democratic right. candidates in, in, in the Deep South. And on top of this, Casey Kep has absolutely beautiful sentences. Her writing is truly strange and unusual. It's a lovely, kind of slightly eerie voice at the South, like Southern Gothic. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. Exactly well, that right. sounds absolutely fascinating. It's definitely one I want to read. Um, you might think that the next one that we're going to talk about on Chapel Sands by Laura Cumming is um, is a smaller book, if mm. you like. Francis, what do you think? Because this is a biography of Laura Cumming's mother, but yes. also about a part of, uh, of England. Yeah, no, this is a very unusual book. And it's interesting. I just want to say something about the genre here, because there is, it is difficult when you are judging 12 non-fiction books. Um, it, it, it's difficult to be able to see the big books, if you like. You, want, you sort of end up rewarding books that have taken years and years and years to research and are about huge subjects and change lives. And then there are very private, quiet, inward books like On Chapel Sands, which is Actually, it's a love letter by Laura Cumming to her mother, who's in her 90s and still alive and evidently the nicest mother in the world. But she had this, she had an extraordinary childhood. She was kidnapped when she was three. She suddenly disappeared from the beach, from Chapel Sands. And it's an experience that she knew nothing about, but it contained that disappearance. She reappeared again after 12 days. And that disappearance contained... Not only this story, a very, very sad story of her family, but a story of the um, story of Lincolnshire, story of the whole village, and it's it's utterly absorbing, beautifully written because Laura Cumming is incapable of writing <laughs> a bad <laughs> sentence. It's just, and she packs into it the most astonishing observations of photographs and art, which is what you'd expect. You'd expect her to say wonderful things about art, and she really does. <clears throat> It's a bit, it's a bit Seboldy, isn't it? You think of, it is. You think you it know, is. and and the text is actually broken up with little pictures and yes, uh, uh, and artifacts in it, and it is a, it is an account of 
of this incredible story. It's a personal memoir. I'm supposed to talk about people wrongly injecting themselves into the story. Oh, she, we have so much to thank, Sybold, for really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she does it really she does it really. Well she well. does it without ego. Yeah, it's not yeah. me, me, me. She's accidentally there. Yeah. She's there as a narrative voice, not as someone who wants her, her sensibility to be praised. We're a bit allergic to ego, I think. A little bit, yeah. I, I think do, do you think as judges you all were collectively? I think, yes, uh, because it's a fairly broad panel in terms of our experience, but I, I, I think none of us want to sort of worship at the altar of self-declared greatness. Yeah. <laughs> I love no, I that. Right. Let's go on to the next book, which is a, a bigger subject. William Dalrymple's book, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company. Uh, Stig, what did, you, what did you think about this book in terms of the tackling of a subject that has been written about an awful lot? I think this is the most traditional non-fiction book on the list. Uh, and it's, the fact it's on the list is testament to, I think, the, the quality of the writing and the research. The relevance of it is very striking. I mean, most people have a sense of empire. And in the last five, ten years, we're becoming more accustomed to reconsidering, recalibrating the British Empire, some of the things that it did so so calamitously and so disastrously. But in doing that, we often confuse the East India Company's actions with the actions of the state. And it is almost unimaginable to think that the institution that conquered India, that led to the to, to, to the mutiny, that did all of these things, was a commercial institution. There's a great line in the book where it says, uh, run from an office no more than five windows wide. So you, so you can kind of... Im- so this, in London. In London. And it was a bunch of capitalists, destructive capitalists, who were running a business. They're corporate raiders. It's the biggest act of kind of corporate larceny in world history. But because empire in our minds is so state-driven, I think the role of the East India Company is easily occluded. And it's easy of us just think, oh, Victorians, the Victorian empire. And, you know, Victoria doesn't take control of India until really quite late on in, in the story, in the story of people taking stuff. It's a, it's a story yeah. of horrible, evil acquisition. But actually, it's by a company. So in a, in a world where we can see corporate raiders, where we can see problems of, of certainly some aspects of capitalism going off the rails because they lack regulation, because they lack supervision, the great example of it may well be the East India Company. Oh, and I think the story what, of now is and very I think, much a story of now. And I think that's what he does very, very well in yes. this. And, and, and would you say that that's something that really struck you as judges, that you were, even if you weren't looking for it, that the contemporary prescience of things Absolutely. really struck you or struck a chord with you? Again and again and again, I think. Just looking down the list, now I realise how, how urgent each book seems. But it wasn't something we were deliberately looking for. No, I, no, I don't think so. And I think you can overstate it sometimes if you try and do it too deliberately because, you know, everything looks a bit like Brexit if you wrinkle your face hard <laughs> enough. Uh, and, and I feel that we didn't have too much of that. But, you know, the next one um, we might talk about is probably the same thing. It, it's, 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 it has a sort of contemporary resonance. This is Homesick, yes. Why I Live in a Shed by Katrina Davis. Yes, Gosh, I was really blown away by this book. I mean, I love the title anyway. You know, and I, I've always been interested in shed living. But this is not this is not what I expected. It's another. How have fa- you always been interested in shed living? <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come I think That's hobbies of, go, Francis. That's... Because of Thoreau, um, who is very much a part of this. He did live in a shed. He did. He did. It's a shed. It's a cabin. It's a cabin. A oh, cabin's not I, a shed. Okay, I've just come back from yeah. Concord and I you went saw it. to see it. Was it a shed or was it's it a cabin? Very small. Yeah. It's a cat. He also didn't live in like, there the whole time, did he? Okay. It was a slight. He did, was, okay, he did walk a mile and a half down the road yeah. to Concord from time to time, yeah. but it was a bit of a con that book. Oh, 
Okay, well. <laughs> yeah, Katrina Davis is very inspired. Is very inspired by kind of American American nature writing. But she lives in a shed because of the housing crisis, because she's got nowhere else to live, because it's a solution to her problem. She can't. She's. She can't afford the four hundred pounds rent a month for a shared flat in Bristol where she has to share a bathroom with four other people including a family and kids but also she's not prepared to do the crap job that will enable that will <laughs> enable her to earn the money to pay the rent to live in a crap place and so she takes over this shed and the shed is a form of freedom it's a form of freedom as well as a form of kind of incarceration and I think she writes about it really beautifully she brings in the larger story of the housing crisis it's a story very much about cornwall this is cornwall remember that voted overwhelmingly for brexit this is a part of the country in serious trouble she told me something in fact all the books told me something i didn't know before but she helped me to understand something that i couldn't see before which was um cornwall <laughs> would, would you say that that's also something that is a thread that runs through all of these books, Stig, that you learned an awful lot? Oh, God, I mean, the great pleasure in life, I think. Um, every day I'm conscious of my own ignorance. And I think one of the joys in life is when you just learn something about an area that you didn't possibly know you needed to know about. And, you know, I think if you judge a book, say you judge the booker, a fiction, crap fiction, there's nothing redeeming about it. You're just wading your way through yeah, bad just fiction bad for your soul. Yes. yeah but a book that in any book that tells you something you didn't know and you we all know so little comparative to the possible knowledge that's out there and i think even the books that you know all of these books that i read even the ones that we didn't love were written in good faith yes they were written to kind of share information and spread knowledge and even if we just took two little things off each of the ones we read that was a real joy and i think that joyfulness kind of impregnated the whole process well let's talk about uh, the next book which is the last Lives of Lucian Freud, uh, uh, an artist who is exceptionally well known, a uh, book, a biography, first uh, volume of a biography written by William Fever. Uh, Fr- Francis, what did what, what were your what were your responses to this as a biographer first? Well, as a biographer, I found it completely thrilling, and it was the most enjoyable biography I think I've read in twenty years. Um, because I mean, it may as well be called the Anarchy. It's a completely <laughs> anarchic biography. <laughs> Because what William Fever has done is, and he's just ripped up the rule book. He's not interested in conventional biography. He's not interested in reverential biography. He's a Boswell. So this is kind of, this is Boswell on Johnson. You know, he's Lucian Freud's friend. He's talked to him. He's broken bread with him every day, which is what Boswell said um, a biographer had to do in order to write the life of his subject. He's eaten and drunk with him and he's recorded his conversation. And so you get um, Lucian Freud in all his charming wickedness on every page if you like telling his own story and at some point saying to William Fever you're making out to be me to be much more moral than I am I mean (laughs) I'm an amoral character and then he said I feel no guilt I feel no guilt and what I liked about this book is and I don't like Lucian Freud I don't like him as a man I don't like him uh, I don't like his art but I love him as a biographical subject and I like the fact that William Fever makes no apology for him at all you just feel the urgent life of this man in a room even at every other book on the list I think will make you a better person this one won't but it will make <laughs> you a better artist because it shows that in order to be a good artist in order to be a great artist you have to be a monster 
And I think, <laughs> or, or just singular in your vision, which is what Freud was. Singular in your vision. <laughs> That's another word for monster. I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other thing is because Freud, you know, you, this is also the story of you know Sigmund Freud. You know, they, they are. This is a family who's coming out of Germany. As yeah. Hitler's on the rise, they just get yes. out. They move to London. It's Soho in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Where 60s. everyone's a spiv. Everyone's a spiv. <laughs> and they, they all say absolutely shocking things. There's some <laughs> advice in there that is that it raises the eyebrows. I won't say it now because this is a family podcast. <laughs> um, but it's a... Uh, it, it's full of lurid detail, isn't yes. it? It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful addendum to the whole Sigmund Freud story that this is a, this is his um, grandson who is completely dysfunctional and fascinatingly so. How it's, interesting! I, that interesting uh, also just to hear you talk about it from a from a biographer's perspective. Uh, let's talk about the Windrush betrayal now, exposing the hostile environment. Amelia Gentleman, who's a Guardian journalist, and she was the woman who broke this story. And the hostile environment that she's referring to is the one created initially by Prime Minister Theresa May when she was Home Secretary and then Amber Rudd who took over from her. Stig, what did you make of this? Because this is an extension of the most astonishing journalistic story. Yeah, and I think if it was just simply journalism, there'd be arguments about its place uh, on a what is amounts to a literary prize. It is a fantastic piece of journalism, unquestionably, categorically. Uh, it was the best journalism, I think, of the year that it took place it was last year. Yeah. It was a magnificent story that urgently needed to be told, not least because we all kind of bumble along in our lives thinking government at heart, although it might be inefficient and it might be slow, it is trying to do the right thing and it is largely managing to do it. It might get things wrong, but we're not constantly heartbeatingly worried about crisis. And what this book sadly reveals is we absolutely should be. This is a bunch of people who, through absolutely no fault of their own, couldn't prove their their identity because they came to this country so long ago as children. Why would they have papers that show why they were there? Why possibly would they? have been here for 60 years, some of these people, and they're being forcibly deported. And not only forcibly deported, because most I wonder how often we think about uh, the manner in which people are deported. They are treated like criminals, and they have no due process. There's no habeas corpus half the time. People just aren't... People are just being flung into places like Yarl's Wood, which are effectively prisons. Yes. Uh, for the for the simple sin of being good citizens for 60 yeah. years. And when she tells it, actually, she gives it the faces of individual stories. But it is almost impossible to, to read this book and not just be deeply, deeply ashamed yes. of the country in which we live. It's very interesting to read this book alongside I'll Never See the World Again. Because it's not, you know, you read, um, as a kind of British reader, you read I'll Never See the World Again and think, oh my God, Turkish prisons. And then read Amelia Gentleman and think, exactly. Christ. But it's like you have 18th is... century France. It's like Lettre de Cachet, the idea that someone somewhere with no due process can say, you, yes. you're going back to, you know, going to Jamaica. They haven't been to Jamaica for 60 yes. years. And at one point they ask a woman, which airport do you want to go yes. to? She, I don't know. I've never been, I've never left England since I was a kid. I've never left this country. And the assumption, country. the way she... Um, points out that the assumption that each of these detainees are lying. So apparently you came to this country in 1969 and the kind of the quizzical raised eyebrow and it makes you go mad. It does. And actually what Amelia Gentleman did brilliantly was, and this credit to The Guardian as well, people started getting in contact with her and they said to her, and she did this, go and find these stories and go and tell these stories. And they've not, and they've actually made it into a very good book because what it isn't, it doesn't feel like cutting stitch together. 
which it could have done. I mean, to, to sort of cash in on this book, they could have just stitched some stories, some long reads together. It doesn't quite feel like that. Well, that's no, very, it doesn't feel like, like that at all. That's very no. good to hear. Let's talk about Julia Lovell, who is a well-known academic on China. She's written Maoism, A Global History. Stig, what did you make of this? I mean, Maoism clearly is a, an ideology that we know an awful lot about. But one of the things about this book, it strikes me, is that, that there is a sense that it's still it's still present in countries well outside China. And I think... We do, we've all heard of Maoism, but how much we could actually hand on heart then testify to what we know about it is, I think, an, a separate question. And I think what I love about this book is it's a massive, amorphous subject that could have been impossible to write about. And why, the way she's managed it, she's a, I feel this very keenly when I read it, intellectually, aggressively tackled it. In that You can tell how clever Julia Lovell is. You can tell how she's organised this stuff. And it could have been, like I said... You know, the story of Mao very chronologically, that's possible. Or it could be trying to to, to see how Mao imp- impacted other parts of the world. But it's taken together. It's the man, the idea, and then the impact. There's a great yeah. quote in it where it says, Maoism never existed, which is perhaps why it was so successful. Uh, <laughs> this notion that it was never fully a single thing and therefore it's adapted and, and, and morphed and become lots of other things. And um, it's a book that only a very, very, very clever person who knows a lot yeah. about the subject could write. And I suppose a reminder again of its of its prescience given China's relationship with the rest of the world because although China now practices aggressive state capitalism it is underpinned ideologically by Maoism. Yes. Yeah, but I know the other thing is that we Maoism is like communism I mean, com, there's a rise of communism in this country people who don't know what communism is saying communism's a good idea isn't it? Maoism's a good idea. We've had people on the labor front benches say you know, the Great Leap Forward was a was a positive thing, and what and Lovell is not in any way political, but she recounts what happened in China mm. over those decades, the lives utterly destroyed, the violence all justified by this philosophy, which has its moments. You know, there's an argument about how feminist it was, for example, which she's very good on, but. We live in a world where things like the ideas of communism and Maoism get recycled by people who don't really understand what they are. And if you're going to say, I'm a Maoist, you should really know what being a Maoist is and what the history history of that is. That's why this book, I think, would be so useful. She's the only academic on the list. Is that right? Oh, that's interesting. Yes, I'm I'm pretty sure. The list is mainly composed, as far as I can see, of journalists or people who have some kind of career in journalism. That's interesting. That is very interesting. So maybe that, and maybe that's the contemporary thing that we didn't say we were looking for, but yeah. subconsciously we were. You yeah. all picked up on. Let's stay with the, the impact of totalitarianism and look at uh, Dorian Linsky's The Ministry of Truth, a biography of George Orwell's 1984. Stig, tell us about this one. I, when this came through, I, th- I thought to myself, there's no way this is going to be any mm. good. 1984, one of the most written about books ever, an idea that has been so commodified and simplified and put on lunch boxes and you know, every quote on Twitter is some inaccurate attribution to George Orwell. Orwell is this sort of prescient figure of, of, of our age and, and therefore do we really need, one might say glibly, another book about 1984? And the, the thrilling answer is <laughs> yes! yes. <laughs> so, we know nothing yeah. about 1984. And also thank God we got one because yeah. uh, like I said the chance of this being a failure I thought we're, we're, we're incredibly high but what he does brilliant he writes really well um uh, dorian linsky uh and he's got a sort of 
enthusiasm and effervescence about what he's doing and what he does is he tells the story of George Orwell as he gets to the point of writing he yeah. writes nineteen eighty four right at the end of his career so he goes a bit back so you're not you're not just doing it when when publishing publishing happens and then he looks at its impact after publication yeah. and how it has become this totemic story of yeah. our time and again it was interesting to read this alongside the Windrush betrayal yeah wasn't it just in terms of the, the uh, dystopias yeah and and I think he could have been really glib for that, couldn't it? Because, yeah. you know, Orwellian is one of the great adjectives that means nothing, like Kafkaesque. Yes, he's very good on Orwellian. And he's very good. He's very good. At, yeah. But again, cleverness. I do think that we live in a world where more and more you people who are running it, people in positions of authority are not clever. Yeah. Cleverness is such a joy when you meet someone. You yes. say, oh, Christ, that, guy's, that guy or that woman's clever. It's and just, his it's just cleverness thrill. is apparent in every sentence. It's, as was Julia Levels. And I think yeah. all of these people, you just think, these are clever people who've taken the time yeah. to write something for us. That, that, that feels quite a nice thing. Yes, I completely agree. The next book on the list is called Guest House for Young Widows by Azadeh Moavani, who is an Iranian woman educated in America, speaks fluent Farsi, fluent Arabic, and has looked at the women who who joined the Islamic State group. Yeah, what an extraordinary subject and what an extraordinary writer. And this um this book will this book will stun people. I think it's I get like so many of the books on this list. It takes you somewhere you've never been before. It asks questions you've never asked before and it shows the human side of uh, the human side of what's uh, demonized and um, dehumanized and seen as utterly strange and other in our culture. It's told which she writes wonderfully clearly and and reveals these lives and these stories in all their complexity and as as pen portraits so women who have made the choice to join islamic state and whether we see them as terrorists or collaborators or or victims yes and and they're um and they're all of those yeah the the answer like all these things will will, will be a combination of, of of several things and you know again morally we're asked Oh, it happens. It happened last year. There's the, that that the woman from Bethnal Green who. Uh, and what should we do to? Should she become stateless? Is she a yes. criminal? How do you handle criminality when someone has decided to join a uh, a clearly horrendous criminal beyond criminal sect? To what extent is she the product of environment? Yes. To what extent is she can she carry responsibility? Yes. To what extent should she be blamed for the actions of people with whom she's associated? All of those things are actually yes. are really deep questions about yes. the role of society, the role of the individual, and and and, yeah. and arguably, in order to think about these things properly, you have to try and think of the whole context. And, no, and right. book, she, books try and explain what various contexts might be. No, she gives us this. It's an incredibly important book. Let's talk about uh, the penultimate book on the list. Uh, this takes us back in time. Uh, the Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the it's Ripper. It's the same book. <laughs> <laughs> it's so similar. Explain, the guest house, for, The guest house for the young widows of the <laughs> yeah. 19th century. This, um, no, this, is, um, this book, The Five, is written in pure rage. It's the angriest book on the list, don't you think, Stig? Yeah. It's um, Hallie Rudenhold begins angry and she gets angrier and angrier and angrier as you go through. And her argument is, can we now stop please celebrating Jack the Ripper? And uh, no, and having commemorated, <laughs> celebrating him as a hero and start thinking about the 
five women he killed. And she, and this, we know nothing about them. And she's worked, the research she's done is just mind-blowing. She's uncovered all of their stories and their desperate stories. They're women who were killed because they because they were alcoholic, because they'd been thrown out of home, because they, I mean, basically. They were sleeping out. They were sleeping That's out. That's the big link that she draws between them. Because the, the tragedy of these women is not only were they brutally murdered, but their reputations were then either occluded or destroyed in the years that followed because yes. the standard cliche is all of these women are sex workers yeah, and they Jack, asked for it and Jack the Ripper must have met them because he, he was interested in visiting prostitutes and oh. she proves that not one of them were sex workers and they were killed because Hallie uh, argues because they were asleep and they were sleeping outside. Because they were, yes. And, and so it's about, I mean, and, 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 you know, even if some of them, and maybe it's not all of them, I think the, the, the point where she's trying to challenge the narrative is that, and it doesn't matter at one level whether someone's a sex worker or not a sex worker, but the point is what you, they're just dubbed as that. That's the one thing. And the yeah. thing she does brilliantly is to say, here's what they were like as kids. Yes. And it's yes. basically, it's a, it's a mini biography of the sort of woman that never gets a biography. And yes. all, and the, the heart-wrenching thing is you see the road not taken all yes. the time. Yes. This moment where they get ha- they they live they're born into poverty but they they meet someone and they scrabble up yes. to kind of lower middle class security for a second and you just yes. even though you know the book you're reading you think oh for please can I let, let, let me have some sort of happy ever after and of course they don't even when they get security yes they've got a drink problem yes. and the drink problem slowly comes up further and further and then they've alienated their parents or their dad or their parents are dead or they alienate their yes. husband and then where do they go yes. where do they go in a victorian london which effectively to take the amelia gentleman book back it punishes people yes. for being poor yes. for being other because what happens, you know, and the things they show you about the workhouse in, environment—that yeah. you're there for, you're there. For, I found this an amazing fact that you're there for two days. You have to stay for three days if you join a workhouse or some figure, and they only let you out at ten o'clock in the morning. At which point you've missed all the jobs that are going that day. Yeah, so the whole right. system yeah. is stops you getting a job, and then if you don't have a job for the next day, you have to go back to the workhouse, yeah. and so the cycle continues. And they're so desperate not to get into the workhouse because it's so soul-destroying. As you say, it's a, the analogies with Amelia Gentleman's research are so close. And, but the thing I admired most, I think, about this book is that uh, she doesn't describe their deaths. Yeah, the, we know how they died. We know whose entrails were removed. Yeah. Or whatever. She just she takes us to the moment of their death yeah. and then she just quietly closes the door. And do, and then, sadly, does the next one. There's five... Yeah. I mean, that's it's yeah. a very... It's a very um, brutal experience at some level because you do the first one and you think oh god and then there's four more and they're all very different but they, they're sort of inexorably drawn to exactly the same fate and, and that is it's, it's very bleak it's, it, but, it, but as a piece of research this is a woman or these are women whose names have been lost in lots of yeah. ways their lives have been lost to history yes. and she's painstakingly recovered them yes it's one of the one of the many books on the list that made you feel ashamed that's very interesting. So the final one, The Outlaw Ocean by Ian Urbina. Um, who's going to start talking about this one first? You, Francis. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is a book for all Conrad lovers. This is um, it's a great title. And it's exactly, that's what it is. The, the sea is a place where no rules apply. He is, Ian um, Urbina is a, an, he's an American journalist and he's already won prizes for this research, like Amelia Gentleman. He spent five years on the seas exploring um, 
exploring outlaw ships, abortion ships, you know, pirates. And um, he tells uh, he tells incredible stories that can scarcely be believed about um, about child slaves and um, the every bit of fish we eat is somehow involved in um, involved in this and the scurrilous the scurrilous stuff that he's exploring it's about culture and it's about poverty and it's about the far east there's a lot a lot of these are kind of thai thai ships and it's about children and it's about abuse and it's about the, it's about the new wild west it's about what you can do when you get away from when you get away from cities and you get away from the law and I think all, the way, all of these, there's a sort of honesty around them. Some of them don't need so much research. Something like uh, Ahmed Altan is a, is a personal testimony, but that carries with it its own very branch of honesty. But the ones you've had to research, there's this sort of commitment to tell the truth yes. in, in all of these. That I think is ultimately, we, may, we might make it, people who just listen to all of this might think, well, some of those are quite bleak stories, and some of them are. But the energising, the 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 inspirational aspect of it is someone somewhere has taken an awful lot of trouble yes. to tell these stories and to tell them straight. Yeah, and these are, this is a book that will change lives. This is a book that will change policy in the same way that the, um, the Windrush well, One of the things was. that strikes me uh, throughout this whole conversation is uh, how much control the writers have over their subject mm. matter and, and how important that is and how that struck you as readers. I think that but it's an interesting group of people because there's, uh, who are judges, but I think probably all of us share... No one wants to read a book with writing out of control. You don't want to read a book where there's, where you stub your toe every five minutes because the sentence doesn't really make sense or it's cluttered or it's ugly. I mean, the subjects are very often ugly and, and sometimes there's no hope at, even within them. But writing has to... You've got to alchemise that into something that you, you actually get to. And I, I, I wouldn't want to read a book where I felt the author was out of control, even yeah. if it was the most important book in the world. To me, this is where this whole importance versus quality debate comes in. But maybe it doesn't, but it has to be well written. I just think that we yeah. would, and we had some of these debates where you think, this is a great person who's written, not, these are, I'm talking books yes, that haven't made... Yes, if you want to give them a prize for nobility. Yeah, yeah, this is a great person and this is a great life. And I hope that they get honoured in some respect, but they've not written a great book. Yes. Uh, and And... You have to have control, I think. It's a really good way of putting it. You've got to have some sort of authorial ability. Otherwise, you could just do a prize for the 10 best people. <laughs> the way in which most of these authors got control over vast material is by um, condensing it all into stories. And this is what Ian Urbina did in The Outdoor Ocean. He's turned the infinity of the sea into a number of stories. Yeah. It is about condens. It's a good point, though, because, you know, even the life of Lucian Freud, everyone's life is effectively the, the strands that come out from a person, the contacts that you make with the world are almost infinite if you count the whole per a, a life in itself. Yeah. And yet it's been reduced down to a series of tales. Yeah. You know, Maoism, giant subject reduced down to yeah. the things that make sense. All the way through this, we're looking at potentially controlling the infinite you know taking something that could just get away from you and bringing it back to something that has has a meaning and, a and, and now of yeah. course you've got this mammoth task ahead of you to to bring these 12 down <laughs> to six i mean that that's going to be tough you know these are all really good books and that's a lovely i mean that's a it's a, it's a and nice they're thing. all really important books and they're all books that i could not put down yeah you know they, and that was the difference between these and 
other and other books. You know, I just I found myself kind of urgently picking yeah. it up again. And it's a pleasure in lots of respects. But when you're reading, you know, tens and tens and tens and tens of books, the ones that are really good do come out. They do they they do strike you, don't well, they? Well, the ones that are really good energize you. Yeah. You take on their energy, and the ones that are less good drain you. So yeah, and so you know, don't you? And yes. That's interesting. Well, what a list. Well, I must admit, I don't envy you having to make that decision, having been a judge on this prize before. But I wish you both the best of luck. Stig Abel and Francis Wilson, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us. Do tune in to the next podcast episode to hear what will make it onto the shortlist in October. The 21st winner of the prize, which celebrates the best in non-fiction writing, will also now take home £50,000. The Blavatnik Family Foundation, who are supporting this podcast, generously also hosts the awards dinner. You can watch the Facebook live stream from the Science Museum in London on the 19th of November. Also, don't forget to sign up to the newsletter on our website, www.thebaileygiffordprize.co.uk and follow us on social media at BG Prize on Twitter and at Bailey Gifford Price on Facebook and Instagram. And the hashtag, hashtag BG Prize 2019. Till the next time. Bye-bye. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.